This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, May 1st. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Jonathan Williams is the Chief Economist and Executive Vice President of Policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council. He joins me by phone today on the Daily Signal podcast to talk about why states should say no thanks to a federal bailout. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. United States intelligence are maintaining that the coronavirus was not man-made or genetically modified. However, U.S. intelligence also announced that they will be investigating whether the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, China. The entire intelligence community has been consistently providing critical support to U.S. policymakers and those responding to the COVID-19 virus, which originated in China. The intelligence community also concurs with the wide scientific consensus, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence said in a Thursday statement, adding, As we do in all crises, the community's experts respond by surging resources and producing critical intelligence on issues vital to U.S. national security. The IC will continue to rigorously examine emerging information and intelligence to determine whether the outbreak began through contact with infected animals or if it was the result of an accident at a laboratory in Wuhan. Another 3.8 million Americans filed for unemployment last week, according to the Department of Labor's Thursday report. This is a decline from the 4.4 million claims filed the previous week. These latest figures bring the number of total unemployment claims to over 30 million over the past six weeks. Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia said in a statement that as states begin the process of reopening and Americans return to work, today's unemployment report reflects once again the hardship caused by the coronavirus pandemic. And he continued on saying, looking ahead as workplaces reopen, we must ensure that individuals transition from unemployment back into the workforce. Key to this process will be workplace safety. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration has been at the forefront of workplace safety since January, delivering important resources and guidance to businesses to help them keep workers safe and investigating and responding to worker complaints. President Trump says that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn is essentially exonerated after documents have been opened in his case. He's in the process of being exonerated. If you look at those notes from yesterday, that was total exoneration, Trump said Thursday in the Oval Office. These were dirty, filthy cops at the top of the FBI. Now, that's not official yet, but when you read the notes, how can you see anything else? In 2017, Flynn pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. as part of an agreement to cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, per The Hill. In January, Flynn moved to withdraw his guilty plea. Trump is now saying that Flynn is exonerated due to documents that surfaced, which show FBI agents debating how to handle a January 2017 interview with Flynn. One bureau agent asked in a handwritten note whether their goal was to get him to lie so he can prosecute him or get him fired, per The Hill. Controversy over the World Health Organization's dealing with China and the coronavirus continue to heighten. On Thursday, the Republican members of the House Oversight Committee delivered a letter to the Democratic members of the committee asking them to launch an investigation into China's influence on the World Health Organization. 
The letter was sent to Democratic Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney of New York and asked that the committee hold hearings in May and provide reports on the World Health Organization's handling of the virus. A part of the GOP letter read, the potential misuse of taxpayer dollars is at the heart of the committee's jurisdiction, and we owe it to the American people to evaluate how the WHO has been spending their hard-earned money. The American taxpayer is the single largest contributor to the WHO, providing approximately $900 million every two years, 10 times greater than China's contribution. Now, stay tuned for my conversation with Jonathan Williams on what you should know about the federal bailouts to states. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? Every day, the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. Webinar topics range from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinar and register, visit heritage.org slash events. We are joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Jonathan Williams. He's the chief economist and executive vice president of policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jonathan, it's great to have you on the Daily Signal podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you with us. I want to talk to you about a piece that you recently co-authored in, that appeared in The Hill, and it was entitled, States Should Say No Thanks to a Federal Bailout. So to just start things off, why should states say no? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, for an organization such as ours at ALEC and certainly yours uh, being affiliated with Heritage Foundation, our good friends there, uh, we care about the principle of federalism. And that uh, we think that the power ought to be decentralized outside of Washington, D.C. And, of course, that was the goal of the American founders. And if we believe in that principle, and everyone who, who does believe in that principle or should believe in that principle should be very concerned about any time the federal government that comes in, perhaps even with the best intentions, to send money to the states to bail them out over perhaps poor decisions that they've made in the past. Instead of letting states govern and make some of those difficult decisions themselves, whenever you have that federal influence, of course, states cede control to the federal government and the strings that come with these federal dollars uh, oftentimes outlive the uh, federal dollars, as we found out with the last time we had a bailout of the states during the Obama era. And I think it's just a dangerous precedent to set that the states would look to the federal government to be their uh, solution for problems that they are well equipped to handle themselves. So looking at what's happened in the past and what's happening now with states asking for these bailouts due to the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic economically, is this a new thing or have states always asked for bailouts? Well, you know, it's uh, I've been doing this a long time, uh, Rachel, and uh, I've seen it happen you know, 10 to 11 years ago when we saw the so-called shovel-ready projects during the Obama era and the financial crisis. There was a group of states and I think it's important to differentiate between all states and perhaps some states that ask for bailout funds or some legislators within those states. And I helped to lead the uh, educational efforts on behalf of ALEC and at the time Speaker Bill Howell in the state of Virginia uh, against uh, some of the other groups that were pushing for a bailout of the state, such as NCSL, a taxpayer-funded uh, organization out there of state lawmakers, NGA, the Group of Governors, uh, League of Counties, and, and some of the others 
that were pushing for a bailout. And, you know, sometimes it does come down to many cases, and this is a little bit oversimplifying, but states that uh, maybe have overspent or racked up massive unfunded pension liabilities uh, or perhaps uh, gotten themselves into the trouble uh, financially are more likely to ask for federal support than states that have made the hard decisions. You know, and every year in rich states, poor states, our report, we point out the states like Utah and Texas and Tennessee and Florida, states that are governed well and keep spending in check, uh, a lot of times those state lawmakers are much more suspect of federal involvement because they don't want to see federal strings attached that could perhaps uh, cause that loss of state autonomy that we talked about a minute ago. So what do you think will happen if states don't get a bailout? Is there any risk to people's pension plans or anything of that like? Well, it depends on, I think, the state-by-state scenario of what the ultimate outcome will be if there's no federal bailout of states. I mean, some states will clearly go in and do what every family and every small business would do, and that is do kitchen table budgeting and say, what do we have, what do we need, what do we want, and how do we make our current revenue fit our spending desires, right, and our spending needs. Uh, there's going to be a number of states that are going to just roll up their sleeves and do that hard work like they should do and create a priority-based budget for their citizens and protect taxpayers. Now, there will be states, I'm sure, without federal support that will go back to taxpayers that have been hit hard during this period, maybe lost a job, maybe a small business that's had to shutter its doors for a period of time because of health guidelines, and they will go back to them and ask for more in terms of tax dollars. Uh, and those will be painful decisions and, and perhaps both of those scenarios. That being said, though, uh, whether states get it right or get it wrong, getting back to the first principle of federalism again, it's important that states and governors and state lawmakers have that ability to solve the problem that they see how to solve it best for their citizens within their states instead of having some sort of one-size-fits-all solution. So if federal bailouts do happen and states receive them, will states' rights be affected as well as states' sovereignty? Well, absolutely. I often said a dollar's never gone from Washington without strings attached. And one time when I was in the states and used that analogy, a legislator stopped me in my tracks and said, no, these aren't strings. These are chains that come from Washington, D.C. with the dollars. And they think back at what happened in 2009 uh, with the so-called maintenance of effort requirements that went out with those dollars in the Obama era. And those uh, requirements lasted far longer than many of the dollars. And so that's been one of the big concerns of, I think, fiscally prudent state lawmakers is there's no such thing as a free lunch, as Milton Friedman taught us years ago, is that the federal government will require all kinds of uh, new regulations and uh, put requirements on states when it sends dollars to states. You know, Utah is a great example of a state that has tried to push back or at least get an inventory of what these costs might be. Idaho has been another state. I know Indiana uh, under Governor Mike Pence at the time and now uh, uh, Governor Holcomb in Indiana have looked at ways to put a price tag on what are the federal regulations actually cost us because we know they're not free when these dollars come. How do we know how costly they are? And then in some cases, those states will say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Even if that federal money is out there, we don't think it maybe is a good idea to take it. And so that whole process, they call it financial ready Utah. They started the process and other states have followed suit. I think it's been something that's a, uh, it's an important element right now to talk about whether states end up getting this money appropriated from Congress or not. What about the whole tax situation when it comes to these bailouts? Could federal bailouts potentially affect federal or even state taxes? 
Well, we know in this era of uh, $24 trillion now and counting of federal debt, that uh, that's going to have to be paid at some point, right? This cannot continue uh, for the long term. And I was going back into my notes as I was getting ready for this uh, policy uh, fight ahead of us on a bailout of states. And I was looking at my notes from 2009, and it really did catch me by surprise that in 2009, when we were having this very similar discussion of a bailout of states, the federal debt stood at about $10 trillion. Today, we're at $24 trillion. Uh, clearly, in one long business cycle, uh, that's done a whole lot of damage to our uh, national competitiveness. And, and once we're through this crisis, we absolutely need to take steps to get our federal fiscal house in order, but adding trillions of dollars in, in, in the proposed new spending that we've seen proposed uh, within Congress or in case of bailout of states, maybe in the range of 500 billion alone going to state and local governments, that clearly is not sustainable going forward. And I think uh, those that really do care about the, the future of the United States, our debt crisis that we do face and our competitiveness uh, really is what we do to, to try to make up for those debt numbers uh, should all have something really big at stake for this debate over a bailout of states as well as future appropriations coming from Congress. Well, Congress passed, uh, as we all know, the $2 trillion CARES Act, and then on Friday, President Trump signed a $484 billion coronavirus relief package that gives more funding for hospitals and testing, as well as small businesses. And now House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is saying she doesn't want Congress to return uh, to D.C. until they are ready to vote on more coronavirus relief legislation that will include passing vote by mail. So given all these moving parts and pieces, and as a uh, fiscal expert yourself, what do you think Congress should do when it comes to acting responsibly um, in legislating recovery for states? First of all, I was uh, I was really pleased to see a uh, letter recently put out by my friend Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana, a former ALEC member in the uh, Indiana legislature, now a real leader in Capitol Hill, and uh, with the Republican Study Committee uh, talking about how any new need uh, that would be appropriated from Congress, and let's face it, there will be real needs ahead of us because of this pandemic and the crisis, uh, those things should be offset, though, by other areas of spending reduction. I think that's a, a really great way to help kind of reprioritize federal spending. Like we were talking about, states need to prioritize. And I think that idea is a great starting point because there will be needs for more appropriations as we go ahead and uh, try to recover nationally. But let's make sure we're not adding and racking up debt on the federal credit card anymore. And, you know, you look at what longer term the federal government could do, uh, look at what the president actually proposed in the budget that came from the Office of Management and Budget and uh, Rusk Vote over there, the director, former Heritage uh, alum and uh, a good friend of our conservative cause. Uh, you know, they actually called for in the budget this year, a lot of people missed this, but for real fiscal rules to say whether it's like Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights that uh, keeps spending in check by not letting it grow faster than population and inflation. It's been something that's really saved Colorado taxpayers now for 25 years, whether it's something like the Swiss debt break uh, that's worked well in, in Switzerland uh, or other ways to control government spending and control debt going forward. I think there's the short-term answer of offsets. I think that's really important that Congressman Banks is working on. But then we need to have a longer and a bigger discussion over long-term ways to control federal spending, which is the driver, of course, of federal debt. 
Well, in your piece, Jonathan, you noted and you mentioned this during our conversation, too, that states like Utah and Idaho have wisely implemented financial ready policies. Can you talk a little bit about how these work and are they an alternative that you would recommend? I think it's wonderful public policy. And in fact, Alec has adopted his model policy as an organization, uh, starting with Utah, Idaho, and other states that have looked at this concept. And that is basically, we need to, first of all, uh, have an inventory of federal funds. Uh, believe it or not, a lot of times federal funds will go out and there's not nearly as much oversight as one might expect and taxpayers really deserve when those funds go to state or local governments. And I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things where Utah took the lead. A lot of our ALEC members and good friends in the legislature were part of that effort, but they brought some of the best minds of the private sector and public sector together and said, let's have a commission and let's study these funds. Let's get an inventory of them first, but then let's see if federal uh, support goes down, which I think it's a question really of when it goes down versus if it goes down, given that we have 24 trillion and heading quickly north, unfortunately, at the national level. What are the steps in Utah's case that their state government will take to make sure that they fund core services even absent federal dollars. And that's been something that I think has been beautiful uh, for a public policy environment. It's been something that the bond rating agencies have actually pointed to when they've given Utah a AAA bond rating. Uh, they said that Utah has this contingency plan put in place in order to protect vulnerable citizens and, and protect core functions of government spending uh, when federal support is reduced. And so I think first step is getting inventory and having a real handle on the cost and regulations that come with federal funds. And then secondly, is prioritizing to say if and when the federal government does reduce support to the states or local budgets, uh, what are the steps that state and local policymakers want to have in place where it's not a free-for-all situation and then it becomes really chaotic at that point at the state or local level. Jonathan, also in your piece, you also talked about how North Carolina drastically lowered its personal and corporate income tax rates and built a rainy day fund where Illinois, uh, on the other hand, would only their rainy day fund would only keep the state running for about 15 minutes. Can you talk about the differences of approach here and how states can be more like North Carolina? Well, it's a really a great case study. It's really a tale of two states, so to speak, and the very radically different ways of state governance. And that's one of the pieces we wanted to highlight in, in our uh, recent op-ed on state bailouts is there's a huge divergence among groups of states out there. Many are doing the right things and trying to do what North Carolina's done now over a decade, starting with Speaker Tom Tillis, who's now in the U.S. Senate, uh, and now with uh, leaders in North Carolina continuing on that path to reducing income taxes, keeping spending really in check now for about a decade, really keeping it within a population inflation growth metric, which we talked about as being kind of the gold standard of Colorado's taxpayer bill of rights. And they've reaped the huge benefits. They've seen massive amounts of in-migration from other states, hundreds of thousands of new taxpayers coming to North Carolina. Uh, they've gotten their rates down to such an effect where I, uh, not only just personal income taxes, which are very important for economic growth at the state level, but business income taxes. In fact, North Carolina has the lowest business income tax rate of a state with the corporate income tax at 2.5%. And when I go around the country and, and ask people what they think North Carolina's uh, corporate rate might be, they're often wildly off on their projections. Just they, you get kind of a gasp to say, wait, their corporate rate's only 2.5%. And it's been a huge calling card for new business development in North Carolina. And the way that they were able to do that, of course, is keep spending in check, 
make sure they're paying down on their unfunded pension liabilities and health care liabilities. They're stocking up their unemployment insurance fund, which is really coming in handy, obviously, right now with the massive amount of new claims. And they stocked away a billion dollars in their rainy day fund, which is obviously going to come in very handy in the midst of the pandemic. And so that's the kind of scenario where if a, if a one-size-fits-all federal bailout comes from D.C. to the states, it's penalizing North Carolina taxpayers who have actually, their lawmakers have done the heavy lifting and done the right thing on the budget and cutting taxes. But it would be a huge boon for states like, let's say, Illinois uh, that you mentioned, where their rainy day fund would last something comically short in terms of 15 minutes of covering state operations. They have massive hundreds of billions of dollars of unfunded liability and state debt, one of the worst funded pension systems in America. I think the Wall Street Journal uh, called Chicago, Puerto Rico on Lake Michigan in terms of its financial situation. And uh, so there couldn't be two radically more different states. It's clear, though, that a lot of folks in Illinois are going to be lobbying very heavily for the federal bailout to try to bail out their bad decision making. Well, unfortunately, the people paying the price for that will be federal taxpayers and many of those taxpayers in states that have actually done the right thing. That's the that's the core of the unfairness of the federal bailout. You also gave the example in your piece in The Hill about how in 2002, Washington actually closed a $2.5 billion budget gap without raising taxes under the Democrat leadership of Governor Gary Locke and bipartisan legislatures. Can you talk about how you would encourage governors to, to take similar actions today? Well, I think Washington state example with priority-based budgeting is one of the very best shining examples of a state that has followed the model of kitchen table budgeting and small business budgeting that goes on every single week across the United States in deciding needs versus wants and doing the heavy lifting at the state at the state level because let's face it federalizing problems doesn't make them magically go away at the end of the day states are going to need to get to the the bottom of a systemic issue of overspending and, uh, and really packing away massive financial liabilities into the future while not covering them in the current budgets. And Washington State, under Democrat leadership, Gary Locke, who went on to serve in the Obama administration as Secretary of Commerce, with a bipartisan group of lawmakers, said, our economy is too weak. We're not going to be able to withstand a tax increase, which I think it's safe to draw that parallel to many state situations today in the wake of the pandemic. And they said we're going to need to prioritize budget reform over tax increases. And so at the end of the day, fast forward through this long kind of arduous process of deciding what the core functions of government would be deciding what the real estimates were on amount of revenue and then making sure that that available amount of revenue went to fund things that got back to the core functions of government. They did that and they solved the budget problem, a $2.5 billion deficit at the state level without a dime of tax increases by going through this, I think, really uh, a revolutionary way of budgeting that states all across the country should be looking to replicate. Well, how would you encourage legislators to work to achieve financial discipline as they continue to work on coronavirus bailout legislation? And as one quick follow-up, um, if lawmakers continue to approve federal handouts to states, what could potential repercussions be? Well, I mean, when uh, when it comes to the federal handouts to states, right, and uh, first of all, you've got the huge moral hazard problem, which is we've... I've, 
been doing this long enough to gone through a cycle or two of, of business cycle and seen this play out a few times before. The uh, the inclination is always to overspend while the economy is hot. We've had four or five years in a row of really good revenue growth thanks to the strong national economy and tax cuts and regulatory relief from the Trump administration and Congress. Uh, and now states were reaping those benefits and they spent in many cases every last dime during the good years. They don't prepare for the bad years, unfortunately, except in the cases like we talked about with North Carolina and others who really did stock away for a rainy day. And then uh, there's the moral hazard problem where if they're expecting a federal bailout every time this happens and more federal handouts to the states, then I think you have to ask yourself, uh, does the politician in a state like Illinois have an incentive to actually ever behave in a fiscally uh, responsible way in the future if they can just count on a federal handout and federal bailout every time that we have some sort of a national downturn. Uh, and it's not, you know, incentives matter in economics, not just in the overall macroeconomic sense, incentives to individual policymakers and individual states matter. And I think it's really important whether we're talking about a bailout, whether we're talking about, you know, the potential uh, ability of states to go into a bankruptcy type proceeding that's been talked about recently in the national headlines. It's really essential that the incentives are correct in order to make sure that there's not the moral hazard problem of states overspending and then realizing that they can socialize those costs and those liabilities out across the rest of the country when times are bad. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for breaking this down for us and for joining us today on the Daily Signal podcast. It's been an honor to have you. Well, it's great to be with you and stay safe and stay healthy. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We do appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. Stay healthy and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.